Hello, welcome back to the Black Valor Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Parks, and I'm bringing you part three of the 761st Tank Battalion story. This will be the final episode on the 761st, the Black Panthers. Next up, I will be bringing you an interview with Sergeant Jerome Bazemore. He's a retired Master Sergeant in the Air Force, and it will be a very good interview, and there will probably be two parts. One, an edited version, and another version of the full interview, because we just had a lot of good things to talk about. I know some people don't have as much time to listen to a very long podcast, so that will give you an option. And you can get part two off of the website. Before I get into the podcast today, I do want to apologize again for the long breaks. When I initially set up to do the podcast, I anticipated putting out an episode every two weeks. Some things have conspired against that, obviously. But one thing I will tell you is I am very committed to this podcast. There will always be an episode going on. I won't stop. I'm going to still try and stick to the two-week rule, but I will not let a month go by without there being a full podcast put up and other things. As more time's available, I'll be able to get ahead of the game a little more. And there will be more things I have promised you, such as the reviews on books or movies I've seen and pictures from my collection and others I find that relate to the things that we've talked about. With the 761st, I have quite a few pictures from the battlefields in Europe, like the Ardennes and other places. I went there when I was in Europe and I'll put those up and tie them as much as possible to the actual podcast that I've done. So those are things that are in the works. Again, I apologize for the long delay between episodes, but be assured I will be putting out more episodes. These will not stop. I still have a lot of topics that I've researched and I'm building on the side, and those are coming. Another thing, I just saw that movie Fury with Brad Pitt. It's a tank movie, World War II movie. They're driving the Shermans that I've been talking about in the podcast, If you want to get an idea of what it was like to be a tanker in World War II, I would recommend this movie. There's quite a bit of moralizing at the front end of the movie. And of course, there's lots of unrealistic things relating to how Hollywood treats any topic. But on the whole, I must say it's very good. Especially scenes with the tanks, the tactics they use, the way they operate, There's a lot of the radio chatter that goes on that is very realistic. So you will get something out of that. In particular, there is one scene in the movie that is very reminiscent of something I'll be talking about today. I'm going to cover just some of the highlights of particular individuals who are part of the tank battalion. For this final episode, I'm going to show you some of the character of the type of people who man the battalion. Obviously, we won't be able to talk about everyone, but there are some who had stories that are still able to be told, and I will share those with you. So let's get started. I will back up just a little bit. Most of the Army's command staff thought that deploying blacks in tanks was a mistake from the very beginning. This is one thing where I think we need to really recognize that it was General Patton, in large part, who was responsible for the Black Panthers the 761st Tank Battalion, being utilized in the European theater. Patton specifically called for the Black Panthers because he was more concerned with getting men and equipment than racial politics. When he put his requisition in for a tank unit, someone at the War Department made a point to him 
well, you know, those are Negroes in the tank battalion. And he replied back, who the blank asked for color? I asked for tankers. To Patton, it was not a concern that they were black. He knew he needed people and that they were trained and they would come and fight for him. On a side note, Patton was also one of the first officers to actually integrate his rifle units. When supplies of personnel started to get low, they did bring in some blacks to fight with white units because they just needed bodies. All told, there were about 2,500 blacks who served in fighting regiments during the war in the European theater because they could not get the replacements. The 761st, as I believe I mentioned in the first podcast, was one of the few battalions that was not part of a division. It was not just them, and it was not just because they were Negro soldiers. That was how they used the tank battalions at the time. A division generally consisted of 10,000 to 15,000 men, while battalions had anywhere from 400 to 1,000 men. So they would piece them out. This did have a big effect on the legacy of the 761st, as well as those other tank battalions. Since the Panthers floated around, their history was pretty much scrubbed from the Army's memory after the war because they didn't have a home division to carry their legacy forward. The way it works with most military histories, when you earn valor, when you complete operations, those things are assigned to that particular unit and then on to that battalion above them and the others in that chain. When those units go away, all the awards and honors and things go away. These parceled out battalions, there was no one after the war to carry on that knowledge. They just disappeared. So most of those tank battalions did not have a big history after the war. It's sad, but a true fact. The first person I would like to talk about is Sergeant Warren Cressy. Now, near the town of Sawville, Sergeant Cressy was fighting with his dog company, uh, Delta Company. His tank was hit by a 75mm shell that went through the driver's compartment and the tank suspension was damaged. The tank was dead in the water. Bullets were pouncing or pinging off of the tank. Cressy shouted, I'm going to get him, before jumping out of the tank, taking a nearby jeep mounted with a 30 caliber machine gun. He was going after one of the anti-tank positions. They would be two to two-man crews armed with a pounder for Foss. So he jumped in the jeep, took out the anti-tank crew, and then continued on past them to kill some soldiers that were acting as artillery spotters, raining and fire down on the tankers. Cressy and his crew got another tank to resume the attack, and the second tank got stuck in the mud. Again, bullets bouncing off the tank. His other tank member said, we're not going out there. Cressy dismounted a second time, then climbed on top of the tank behind the turret and used a 50 caliber machine gun to lay down cover fire. This allowed the infantry that was traveling with them to advance. If you look at a picture of the M4, the 50 caliber machine gun was on top of the turret, but off to the side from the hatch. In order to use it properly, they could stand behind the turret on the back of the tank and then shoot. So not a lot of cover there. Another person I'd like to mention, Lieutenant Joseph Cahoe. He was the Able Company commander. 
He found some German anti-tank positions that were situated around the German town of Wyss. He took it upon himself to counterattack with soldiers from the 104th Infantry Regiment who were there in support. He captured Wyss early in the morning of 13 November on his own without any direction from higher-ups. Now we get to one of the more celebrated members of the 761st, Sergeant Reuben Rivers. He was part of the attack on Wyss, and he proceeded to shoot the 50 caliber from the ta top of the tank, standing on the back as I described before, but that's how he went into the battle, riding on the back of his tank, shooting his 50 caliber. Rivers' platoon commander, Lieutenant Robert Hammond, radioed to tell him not to go into the town of Moorville, which was down the road, because of a large number of enemy infantry and tanks that were there. Well, Rivers had to radio back to him a little apologetically and sheepishly that he had already went through the town of Moorville. He was out so far in advance, he had already passed the point where they were rallying. Later, as the Black Panthers advanced on Borgeltroff, Rivers' tank hit a mine. He was pretty badly injured. Actually, descriptions say that shrapnel had cut him to the bone on his leg. But he refused to be evacuated or take morphine because he knew they needed him. At this point, many of the tankers were down to only four-man crews instead of the typical five because they had not received enough replacements. And he was adamant that they leave him in his tank. Not happy with being just placed in another tank, he actually went to the tank of T.C. Henry Conway and kicked him out of his own tank and continued the advance with him, with Conway's crew. While his previous crew grabbed rifles and they actually fought alongside the infantry that were accompanying them. When the battalion got to a river uh, heading towards the town of Gebling, there was a river separating their side from Gebling, which was on the other side, but the bridge had been blown out. So engineers were there and they were repairing the bridge while everyone geared up for a big fight. Gibling was a major crossroads for both sides. The medic went to Inspector River's leg and they found that his leg was infected. He was in quite a bit of pain, but he refused to take any morphine. It was the standard drug they used then. As you know, it was a very powerful drug and it will affect your judgment, your ability to operate any kind of vehicle, let alone a tank. So he still refused. Captain Williams, who was in charge of them, told him he was ordered to go back to the rear. But Reuben Rivers still refused. He said, that is one order, Captain, I will not follow. I'll follow any other, but that is one order I will not follow. Captain Williams backed off. What could he do? Around the same time, Colonel Hunt, who had came to replace the short-lived command of Lieutenant Colonel Wingo, who took over briefly for Colonel Bates after he had gotten hit. Colonel Hunt was visiting their section and he was competent from most accounts, but he did not have the love for the tankers and the tankers didn't have the love for him like they had with Colonel Bates. He had a better relationship. But Captain Williams went to Colonel Hunt and he asked him to put in Rivers for a Congressional Medal of Honor for his actions. The colonel replied, well, didn't he already get a silver star for his actions? And captain said, well, that was for a different incident, uh, I believe back in November, 
when he had exited his tank to clear the rogue obstruction under enemy fire. In the battles around Gebling, his crew had killed over 300 infantry and he was credited with taking out at least two tanks. So this was what Captain Williams wanted him to be recognized for with the Congressional Medal of Honor. And the, the colonel was reluctant to submit him for the award, so that did not happen until obviously much, much later on in the 90s. Early that next day, the 104th Infantry and the 761st Tank Battalion were surprised by multiple Tiger and Mark IV Panzer tanks as they crossed over towards Gebling. The infantry were spread out, kind of out in the open, when the Panzers and the Tigers came through. Now, the Tigers were one of the hardest, if not the hardest, tank, that, well, I guess the Elephant would have been, but the hard tank that the Germans had. Very thick armor, sloped in the front, so shells bounced off. Had a 128 millimeter gun, which would destroy any M4 that was out there. And the Panzer tanks were just slightly less deadly than the Tigers. Well, when these tanks came through the smoke, Williams told all the tankers to pull back. After Lieutenant Bob Hammond's tank had exploded, uh, they were kind of out in front of everyone, and the German tank saw them, immediately blew the tank up before they even had a chance to respond or unlimber their uh, cannon or anything to get ready to return fire. Rivers, on the other hand, said, I see them, we'll fight them. He was always good to go. He and Sergeant Walter James, and in another tank, took up two sides and sparred with the heavy German tanks, causing them to slow down their attack on the infantry long enough for the infantry to get to cover, just before Rivers' tank took a, a direct hit. The shell that hit his tank hit Rivers, so he died instantly, and his driver was so disoriented from the concussion and shock, he ran straight towards enemy lines instead of away from it. And they did not find him until a couple of days later, dead, unfortunately. The Germans killed him. Something interesting. The army frequently gave command of tank platoons and companies to the infantry commanders they fought beside, even though they did not understand how best to utilize tanks. It's something that's ingrained in the army culture. Tanks were still relatively new, but infantry will always rule the day in the army. But at this time... They were given control over the tank battalions. Uh, as I said before, they were parsed out, and it was usually to infantry commanders, and they rarely fought as a whole infantry tank, or excuse me, as a tank battalion, with people who understood what tanks could do and what their limitations were. Near Hanskirch, Captain Popgates had pleaded with a regimental commander, who was part of the 26th Division, to put off his idea of a frontal assault on entrenched German positions while traveling single file down a narrow road. In fact, the word some people reported was that Popgate said, with all due respect, sir, this is the dumbest thing I have ever heard of. And you could add some pejorative terms that he may have said in there. So Gates really was not looking forward to tanking his tanks down a single file road when the enemy was waiting for them. He moved his tanks partially down towards Hanskirch and then had them go back a bit, all trying to delay the attack long enough for someone who uh, had better information or a better leader who could give directions that was a higher rank than the colonel. He delayed for about four hours, but no one came, 
and the colonel went down to him and gave him a direct order to start the attack. So he had no choice. The tanks proceeded down the road, and as Popgates predicted, the Germans picked off every tank there with the exception of one. They basically shot the first tank, every other tank, and then worked their way down. At the end, they destroyed five of the platoon's six tanks in very short order. Gates was wounded by the shrapnel. His driver, Lane Dunn, was killed instantly from at the first engagement. The only thing that kind of softened the blow was that Patton actually came down to visit the men shortly after the attack to question why the Panthers lost five tanks. Gates had a chance to talk to Patton, and he explained what the colonel's orders were and all his objections to them. Patton had the colonel sent back to the States within two weeks. It was a small victory, a pirate victory, but at least they were able to get him off the battlefield. In another engagement, Gates's two-way radio stopped working, leaving the company unable to communicate with each other. Gates dismounted and then ran between each of his tanks to and scouted enemy positions so they could coordinate their assault. He did this using hand signals or getting on top of the tanks to talk to the men in there directly, running back and forth until they were all coordinated, which resulted in a great assault on those enemy trenchments. Another memorable event happened when Henry Conway, the sergeant that Reuben Rivers had forced out of his tank, was attacking Hill 309 in France. He was out front, and his tank became cut off from his platoon with German infantry and panzer tanks that moved in between them. Enemy artillery was able to single out this individual tank, and they damaged the rear of his tank, but he was able to nurse it back to a ridge. From that ridge position, his crew was able to fight off the Germans for more than an hour, slowing their advance, and it gave his people time to come up. If you look at when the tanks were fighting the conditions, it was rare for tankers to fight after dark. In those areas, there's lots of narrow roads, mines, hedgerows, which made it very hard to maneuver your tank around, and lots of forests, thick wooded areas, which aren't the best for moving tanks around at night. But the Allies had a determination to secure the road between Eiderschleitenbach and Erlenbach. T.C. Frank Cochran's platoon was given a job to advance and take over Erlenbach. They drove with no lights on, no external lights on, and the only illumination they had was when they used their weapons to cannon and machine guns to shoot. But they fought through the road, and when morning came, relief forces came up. They discovered that the platoon had destroyed seven pillboxes, ten machine gun nests, and the town of Erlenbach itself was just leveled. It was turned into rubble. Cochrane was one of those tankers who was in the failed assault at Hanskirch. His tank was actually hit, and his driver, Private James Wellborn, died instantly from the hit. Cochrane had to yank the few stumps of his cannoneer, Private Frank Greenwood, from the tank to take him out before the tank exploded. When the shell had come through, it had actually blown off the lower parts of his leg, and the heat had melted his leg onto the metal and wires of the tank. So Cochrane literally had to pull apart the private's tanks 
or his stumps from the tank and throw him out of the tank to save his life. During an attack on Munchweiler, Sergeant Lattimore was in a lead tank and he caught a large number of Germans retreating with tow guns, horse-drawn artillery. You know, they have to get back a ways so they can shoot towards the Americans because they were advancing so fast. Sergeant Lattimore found this group and his platoon sped forward right into the midst of the Germans. They wound up killing mostly most of the Germans. Some of them did put up token resistance. You know, they, they turned fire, they shot, but it was very weak and ineffective. But when they saw who the tankers were, they actually started running towards them, begging to surrender. It was something they discovered afterwards, uh, well, after these engagements, a little later on, that the German troops truly were terrified of black soldiers. Some of it was because of stories that they heard from their fathers, their uncles, you know, grandfathers who fought in the first war when they faced off against the French Senegalese fighters. They were known to be very fierce, determined fighters. And also from the reputation that the 761st had been creating on their own. And I guess the foreign nature of black soldiers fighting, which they didn't see much of in Germany. They called them the Schwarze Soldaten, and they were very afraid when blacks appeared. As a matter of fact, Near the end of the war, when large numbers of Germans were uh, retreating to the west to get away from the Russians and surrender, they would actually tell the black tankers to stay inside your tank, don't come out, because the Germans were surrendering en masse. In one instance, a black tanker had got out of a tank and waved, and all the Germans just started running back to the woods until they shot over their heads and let them know, no, you're not getting away. That was when they had large numbers, you know, thousands of Germans retreating at once. One more story on Staff Sergeant Johnny Stevens. He was supporting trapped infantry near the town of Newhouse when he dismounted to get a better view of the situation. He crawled forward in the brush to scout the enemy positions, only to find that he was yards away from a German machine gun nest. He realized that they would probably see him if he was to get up and try and move away afterwards. He was just so close to them. His noise probably would have given him away. So he decided instead to charge directly at the nest and try and take them out by throwing grenades. There was an infantry lieutenant there who was uh, part of the group that was trapped, or I should really say pinned down. This lieutenant saw Stevens. He instantly jumped up and ordered his men to charge with Stevens. When the fighting was done, well, Stevens' crew helped too. They provided cover fire overhead while they advanced. But once they had finished capturing the position, they had killed nine Germans and captured 36. This is just a few stories from some of the people who fought with the 761st Tank Battalion. It's not even the tip of the iceberg. I really recommend, if you have time, looking at the sources that I've put out there and go read for yourself the amazing feats of these tankers that they accomplished in their short time in the European theater of war. They had such a big impact. I really recommend you look at this. During World War II, there were 22 Negro units that fought in Europe. They included nine artillery battalions, one anti-aircraft battalion, eight combat engineer battalions, and there was another black tank group, the 784th, that started engagements at Eschweiler, Germany, excuse me, 
in January 1945. All told, the Black Panthers earned a presidential unit citation. This was actually given in 1978 by then President Jimmy Carter. They earned over 250 Purple Hearts, 70 Bronze Stars, 11 Silver Stars, and a Congressional Medal of Honor, which went to Reuben Rivers in 1995. They destroyed or liberated over 30 major towns, four airfields, three ammunition supply dumps, 461 wheeled vehicles, 34 tanks, 113 large guns, a radio station, and thousands of enemy soldiers. Uh, Quite the big record. There is one correction I have to make. I think I mentioned in the first episode that Tresvan W. Anderson was a member of the 761st. He was not. He was actually a reporter who went over with the battalion and stayed with them throughout all the battles and the wars that they fought in Europe. So just a reporter, but he is the one that put together the Come Out Fighting book, which I have relied on so heavily for these podcasts. My sources for this are World War II Stats and Facts by Peter Darman, a news article, Paul L. Bates, Commanded First World War II Black Tank Battalion, which was in the New York Times, February 26, 1995. Brothers in Arms, The Epic Story of the 761st Tank Battalion by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Patton's Panthers, The African-American 761st Tank Battalion in World War II by Charles W. Sasser. Come Out Fighting, The Epic Tale of the 761st Tank Battalion, 1942-1945 by Tresvant W. Anderson. And Fact Sheet on 761st Tank Battalion, which is off the Army History site. I hope you enjoyed this three-part podcast on the 761st Tank Battalion, the Black Panthers. And please come back and listen to the next podcast in two weeks. I will talk about or have the interview with Sergeant Basemore. As always, if you have ideas for topics you would like me to cover, you can go onto the website and leave them on the forums. That's www.blackvalor.net. You can find us on Facebook iTunes, at, on Twitter at BlackValor1010. You could always also email me at BlackValor1010 at gmail.com. I strongly recommend you go to the BlackValor.net website where I have more information with pictures, documents, things to flesh out what you hear on the podcast so you can get more information for yourself. That's it. Thank you. See you in a couple weeks. Music